All right. Thank you, everybody. Um, let's pray and we'll get started. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that we could be here today. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless our time studying your word. And we pray that your word would be the tool that you use to deliver forgiveness and faith and your spirit to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, so for those of you who were here last week, and welcome to those of you who weren't, um, was there anything from last week that stuck in your mind, uh, something that was valuable to you, or something that um, it came up during the week, or, or anything like that? Okay. I will keep asking that. And because uh, just, I mean, in my experience, it does. God's word has a way of doing that where it just, it, it gets into your life and all of a sudden you're in this moment and it's just, oh yeah, there was that thing. So, all right, Romans 11, we're, we're, we're working our way through uh, uh, the book of Romans here and in Romans 11, uh, we're almost done with chapter 11 and, uh, and then we're going to find a kind of a shift, a pivot in Paul's themes, but uh, we got to get through this first. Paul writes, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. Uh, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with him, with them, when I take away their sin. Um, going back to the, uh, the original languages here, um, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery so that you will not be, uh, the Greek is wise in your own eyes. I, I, I like that phrase. Conceited makes sense. It's a good translation in terms of, you know, what, what does this mean? Um, but uh, sometimes I, I like the kind of uh, picture language that the Bible uses, um, you know, wise in your own eyes. We've met people like this, you know, you can tell they think that they've got it all together and they have all the answers. And, uh, you know, and you're just like, you don't have a clue. Um, and, uh, um, and that's what he's saying. Sometimes people, you know, in, in terms of our relationship with God and our faith, um, we like, we have this all figured out. And, and well, no, this is something that's really ultimately all about grace and it's about God's love and his mercy uh, at work in our lives. We're dealing with this mystery of this rejection or, or hardening is the language that's used here of Israel and this translating into salvation for the Gentiles. And we're really wrestling with this idea of kind of why some and not others and uh, leaving that question with a really solid question mark at the end. You know, to kind of say, these are God's mysteries, and we don't understand them. We know that he wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. We know that Jesus died to atone for the sins of all humanity. We know that that blessing is received by faith. Now, when we start talking about why did some people receive it and not other people, then it becomes, I don't know. I don't understand where, where God is at work in this. Um, and 
I think it's important to recognize that as this happens, God is actually using that uh, to bring salvation to others. And that it was through this hardening of Israel, through their disobedience and their sin, that the gospel, in a sense, comes to us so that we can be forgiven and we can have this salvation. So Paul, he he keeps going back to the the scriptures. This section between chapter 9 and chapter 12, uh, he quotes more of the Old Testament in these passages than any place else in the rest of the book of Romans. Um, he, He cites a couple of passages here, one from Isaiah and one from Jeremiah. And uh, I think that when we find these passages and we go back to them, I think it's good for us to look at some of the context around them, that it's, it's helpful. I sometimes wonder if Paul isn't using this verse as shorthand for the whole chapter or for the verses immediately around it. You know what I mean? Sometimes, you know, you tell part of a story, but the whole story comes to mind. And, and I, I think that maybe he does this sometimes. You know, so with this passage, um, the first, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godless, uh, godlessness away from Jacob. That's coming to us from Isaiah chapter 59. Um, it says that the redeemer will come from Zion. It's a little different, uh, little different translation. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. And to those in Jacob who turn from transgression... This is the Lord's declaration. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of your children's children from now on and forever, says the Lord. The passage of this is he's, he's been telling them they're going to go into exile. And when they're in exile, he's going to come to them as a deliverer, as a, uh, a redeemer. Uh, this word rede- that's translated in Hebrew uh, from, the, from the Hebrew as redeemer, um, it, it can mean redeemer, it can mean avenger. It also means one who claims one's own. And God is saying in this passage, I'm going to come to my people that belong to me, and I am going to claim them as, as my own. And, and to those in Jacob who turn from, from transgression, or um, he talks about it differently in, in the other, uh, I will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Um, and this, this, this idea of turning, it, it's a really important uh, word theologically in uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, because this is the word that we get uh, our concept of repentance. You know, this idea that when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, uh, we, we are turned. And then as we live in the Spirit, we turn away from sin and, and turn to the ways of, of God. And, and there is this covenant relationship uh, and a covenant uh, it's, it's usually making mutual promises, but when you read through the Old Testament, um, the mutuality is generally not there. It's God making promises. You know, he says, I'll make this covenant. And Israel's like, yeah, that sounds great. And then 
they just kind of go and do what they want to do. You know, something we would never do, right? Um, but uh, uh, it, God is saying, I am faithful to my promises here. I have made a promise to them. Now, one of the things that I think is really important when we're reading through this is look at who is doing the verbs. You know, who is doing what? Because when you read this Isaiah passage, uh, it's really clear it's God who's doing all of it from first to last. Which is very consistent with everything that we've read in Romans. That it's all about what God is doing. And I think what Paul is doing as he cites this is he's taking us back to that concept that it's God is the one who is doing all of this work to bring salvation, to transform us, to shape us, to form us, all of it. He's the one um, who delivers and he's the one that actually turns godlessness away, who turns us away from godlessness and leads us into repentance. The, the second passage then is from Jeremiah chapter 31. Um, he says, and this will be my covenant with them uh, when I take away their sins. So Jeremiah 31, uh, a little bit more of the context. Uh, Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a co new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke even though I am their master. Um, I find that to be a strange uh, translation there. It fits within the range of the word, but most English translations have this as, even though I am their husband. Uh, there's a lot of marriage imagery throughout the book of Jeremiah. Um, and uh, and that, that bridal imagery, it fits with what we have in the church too. The church is called the Bride of Christ. And, you know, and Christ the groom. Uh, you know, even, even during Jesus' ministry, um, Jesus was confronted one time about uh, fasting. And he was asked why you know, John's disciples are fasting, the Pharisees are fasting. How come your disciples don't fast? And his response is, how come they fast when the bridegroom's here? In other words, you're at a, you're at a wedding party. Why would you be fasting? You know, the, the Savior's there. And, um, and so, even though I, I am their husband, the Lord declares, uh, instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord declares. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sins. So this covenant that God makes with Christians is one of forgiveness. And the way that it's talked about initially in this passage is that of taking away their sins. And we usually think about that in terms of Jesus dying on the cross, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So he takes our sins away um, and they, they go on to him. Um, we, we call this, uh, in theological terms, the, uh, the vicarious atonement. Um, 
you know, a, a vicar is somebody who stands in the place of somebody else. You know, and Jesus stands in our place to, to bear our sin. Um, but the idea of him taking away the sin, it, it continues through the, that whole passage. And I love the way that Jeremiah um, 31, 34 really digs into this where it says, I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. Um, I took a class uh, when I was working on my doctorate on uh, peacemaking uh, and you know, just kind of how do we help people who are in conflict reconcile with each other. And uh, one of the stories that uh, the professor shared, he, he was a licensed counselor and he was doing marriage counseling and he was saying that he had a couple that came in and he sat down with them and said, you know, so would you describe what's going on? And the husband says, every time we get into an argument, my wife becomes historical. And, you know, I, I saw the look over here that kind of confused historical. And, you know, he's like, I, I, I think you mean hysterical. And, and the husband says, no, I mean historical. She brings up everything I've ever done. I would say that that's not a unique trait among women. Um, and it's not only women that tend to do this. Um, we have long memories when people hurt us. And when people do something wrong to us. And... Uh, and so what, what God is saying here, when we read, I will take away their sin, I think you have to tie it to this, I will forgive their iniquity. Forgiveness is a choice, right? This is something that he is choosing to do. And I will never again remember their sin. Yeah. That's, that's a pretty powerful statement. Yes, it is. So, how does that relate to their acceptance of Jesus Christ, or the rejection, I guess. Where, does, where do our sins get forgotten? At the cross. That's, they're nailed there, they're left there, right? So when we look at where does our forgiveness come from, you know, it's, it's not just that, you know, God goes through and just says, well, la-di-da, you know, I'm just not going to deal with this, and um, when I do marriage counseling, one of the things that I will talk with people about is there, there are healthy ways to handle conflict in marriage, and there are unhealthy ways. And um, one of the ways that we, uh, we handle conflict in a healthy way is that sometimes we choose to overlook an offense. You know, uh, if we dig into everything that, you know, kind of rubs us the wrong way with our spouse, then sometimes it's like, you know, we're, we're constantly dealing with the negative. Sometimes we, we choose to overlook those things out of love. Now, that's not what God is doing here. He's not just choosing to overlook it, the, the sins of his people or our own sins. Uh, he, he is saying, I am dealing with these things. And this is the mechanism that's going to deal with all the sins of my people and the sins of the whole world. My son is going to die in that place. And those who trust in him receive that forgiveness and that salvation. And as long as we're in Christ, the promise is that when God the Father looks at us, he doesn't see us in our sin. He sees Jesus in his perfection. You know, so 
the iniquity is forgiven and the sin is forgotten in Christ. Does that get what you're asking? Well, I think. <laughs> Somewhere along the line, they have to say, I would think, that we accept Jesus Christ as, as our Savior. I mean, at some point, they, you know, there, there has to be faith and, and trust there, and hopefully that does come into a verbal confession, right? Um, but, uh, you know, because, I mean, Paul talks about this earlier, you know, um, it, it's with the heart that we believe and are justified and with the mouth we confess and are saved. Um, but I always want to be careful with the whole, you know, well, you've got to follow the formula the right way. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily mean verbally, actually. Yeah. In, in their heart. Yeah, they, 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 there's faith in Jesus. Yeah. yeah. And when, that's what I mean by being in Christ. You know, that, that's a faith relationship, trusting in him as our savior. Yeah. I just would like to know, do we as people have that ability to never again remember sin against us? I don't think so. I, I don't think so either, because I don't think all, so. I'm always haunted. It's always, yeah, I remember, you know, and I, I don't want to. Right. Hopefully in death, right? There are a couple chairs over here still. In death, yes. You know, no one remembers in the grave, right? Hopefully. Um, but, 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 you know, yeah, but what powerful imagery. Yeah, right, absolutely. For us to think about as a model. Yeah. That we can, you know, people that we love and we care for and that, yep. that have hurt us. And, yep. And it just always comes back to haunt you, or at least me, you know. Yeah. yeah. No, I think, I think yeah. us is, is, is true. Um, and uh, one know, of the things that I my thoughts, yeah, you know, but and I think that this is also true of our own sins. That sometimes sure, our own absolutely. sins haunt us, you know, absolutely. and they keep coming back, you know. Yeah. I have a thought. Do you ever think that maybe Satan is oh, in your head just to make you feel unworthy? Oh yeah. Do you are yeah. not worthy for the saving Oh, he likes messing with me. Absolutely. Yeah. Why well, I think he messes with everybody. Yeah. I, I'm going to get to you. Just have a second. Okay. Um, you know, so the the, the name Satan it means the accuser. That's one of the devil's favorite, yeah. you know, and, and you know, games to play with us is, you know, just telling us what we've done. Yep. Yeah. Ed. Well, I was actually at early service today, wonder of wonders. <laughs> so, so I Did you have to drink of, extra coffee to get through that? Yeah. <laughs> I only drink decaf. Now, oh, okay. So it doesn't help. Uh, but uh, you know, I got to thinking there when you were talking about forgiveness and repeat, and I, and and I saw parallels of it. No doubt, you know, we repent of our sins and we're going to sin again. Yeah. But you know what else is our sins are forgiven, but we also sort of fall back into guilt yeah. again. And yeah. that's, to me, the reason that we need it, yeah. to be reminded and have that reinforced over and over. No, that's beautiful. Thank you for bringing that up because that, that's actually a really important aspect of the Christian life. You know, we live our whole life as forgiven children of God. <laughs> Every sin that we've ever committed, every sin that we ever will commit is forgiven in Christ. And yet we feel the burden of that and we feel the guilt of that. And we need to hear and receive over and over again Christ's forgiveness. To your point, we do have character defects, right? That we need to continue to weave the garden. 
Right. Oh, and yeah. And become more like yeah. how he would have us. There's a time you sin you don't know you sin. Yeah. Don? I want to go back to that master and husband. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they were synonyms. Um, I was always taught that. The, uh, the, the Hebrew word there is actually the word Baal, which, if you weren't what? sleeping at that point in the sermon, um, uh, that, that's the name of one of the false gods of... Uh, yeah, yeah, they just called him Lord. Um, and, uh, yeah. Remember, though, that in Genesis, uh, when God creates woman, he calls him helper. There's only one other person that gets called helper, and that's God himself. So you might even say, you know, okay, if you're master, then she's savior. So be careful with where you go there. <laughs> Anything else on uh, Romans 11, 25 through 27? That was worth this whole... We'll be using that we remember else. The women come back next week. I remember this. I tried, Jane. I tried. All right, anything else before we move into 28 through 32? <laughs> All right, so regarding the gospel, Paul writes, they are enemies for your advantage. But regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs, since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable. You are, excuse me, as you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience, so they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so that they also may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that he may have mercy on all. Okay, so regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage. In other words, they rejected the gospel, they rejected Jesus, and this was for you, um, you, you Gentiles. But regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarch. In other words, God is still calling the Jews to come and believe in him, and, you know, and to receive his grace and his forgiveness, since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable. As you once disobeyed God, so you Gentiles, you were once separated from him and you were disobeying him, uh, but now have received mercy through their disobedience, so they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so that they also may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. So what you have here is the Jewish people were thinking that their relationship with God was rooted in kind of this genetic heritage that we were connected back to Abraham and, and all this. And he's saying, no, no, no. Your relationship with me is the fact that I'm a God who forgives sins. And so I am taking away all of that heritage stuff and making it so that your relationship with me is the same as the Gentiles. <coughs> oh, you're a sinner? Well, guess what? I've done something about that with my son. And everyone who comes to me comes to me on the same footing. You are a sinner who is redeemed because Christ has died and risen for you. And he's just, in a sense, what this is saying is he's just leveled the whole playing field. Yeah. 
you know, I, I, that verse 32, it, it's, it's kind of like a two by four between the eyes. This idea that God imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. There, there is no, you know, oh, look, my special status. It's all. No, you are a forgiven child of God. And this is consistent with the whole book. The whole book has been telling us over and over again that, you know, well, go back to Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. First for the Jew, also for the Greek. But in it, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That little phrase there, from faith to faith, it's a tricky little bit to translate in terms of what, what, it, what exactly is being said here. So some people have translated this. You'll find some English translations that will say um, that it is revealed um, from faith by, by faith first to last. You know, Luther translated it by faith alone. This is that famous word he scribbled in the margin, uh, soli gratia. Uh, or you know, solely fide, excuse me. This idea is that whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you come to God by faith. And actually, isn't that, hasn't that always been the case when you read through the Old Testament? When you know, it, it's always been about faith. And the people have always been confused. That well, look, we're, God, God loves us more than everybody else. He chose us, but he chose you to have faith so that you could draw others to faith. Yeah. That whole thing about imprisonment and disobedience, it, mm. it just brings to mind there's a psalm that always puzzles me. That we comes up in Lent a lot. It has that passage, Against thee only have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou might be justified. And it's it just sounds like the weakest excuse in the world. I didn't sin because it was fun or because I gained by it. I did it all for you, God, so you would have some sin to work with because I know there is not enough of it in the world to keep you busy. I'll go with that. <laughs> but, but there is an element of it because we continue to judge God. And so he's like, you want some evidence? Okay, yeah. here you go, pal. <laughs> let's just take, let's just hold up the mirror. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Does verse 32 speak to just the human condition? Right? Everybody in disobedience. Yeah, in some ways, absolutely. But notice that it's not just that we're in that condition. It's right. saying that God put you in that condition. And he put, put it for this purpose, that he could save everyone. Because the only salvation is going to be through his grace. And, and that's, that's Romans all the way through. You know, that it's all about his grace and his forgiveness. You know. You said to uh, tick off the, the Jewish leaders, huh? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, and in fact, he flat out says, you know, God did this to make the Jews jealous. Because he's hoping that they're going to, you know, take hold of the promises that have been made to them. That they're going to receive the Messiah. You know, that they will actually... If you go back into the Old Testament, 
Israel is set aside as a light to the world. The whole idea is that the, the, the nations are going to see Israel and they're going to see the graciousness of their God and the wisdom of their God and they're going to be drawn to Israel. Well, Israel didn't do that. And so he flipped it over. And now all of the salvation has come to the Gentiles with the hope that Israel is going to be drawn to them. And don't we do that too? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Because yeah. people are people and we're all imprisoned and it's all by grace. Yeah. And so, going back to the previous section, that bit about humility, you know, not, you know, being too wise in our own eyes, it's really important. I actually think that this is one of the biggest problems that the church has as we relate to our culture right now, is they don't, they don't perceive a sense of humility. You know. A sense of judgment. Yeah, yep. You know, and, and frankly, I, I have found over and over again that if you, uh, if you represent God's word clearly, and you can do this as humbly as you want, you know, as humbly as the Spirit gives you ability to be, they're still going to experience the judgment because God's word does that. You know, remember that as we interpret the scripture, we tend to uh, uh, divide the scripture into two overarching umbrella teachings. Um, we have the law and the gospel. And the law always, always, always accuses. You know, anytime we, we bump into the law, it's going to show us our sin, and people will feel that. So, um, this last little bit here is from the commentary that I've been using to... Uh, um, uh, prepare my, my lessons as I'm going through this. Um, but uh, he wants to emphasize, and I agree, that this, this whole section of Romans 9 through 12, that sometimes people are like, you know, this is an addition or it is something that, you know, Paul's on a whole different topic. No, it's all one cloth, it's all connected. He says, these chapters are not stand, a standalone piece, nor are they in any way out of step with the rest of the letter. Instead, and these italics are his, uh, these chapters skillfully draw out the implications of what the letter's opening chapters teach about the place of Jews and Gentiles among the New Testament people of God. Paul directly applies these words to those whom he, uh, in Rome, uh, I typed something wrong there, um, he in Romans, as 11.32, uh, concisely demonstrates to all. The salvation is, is for all. And then he wraps this section up with a doxology. Um, so in church sometimes, you know, we'll sing a hymn and the last hymn will have that little triangle next to it and then we all stand up. You know, we, we call those verses um, doxological uh, from the, the Latin doxa for glory. And basically, they are usually uh, hymns of praise or a verse of praise that names all three persons of the Trinity. And so, um, this is a bit of a doxology, uh, and it is very much a, uh, a, a word of praise, a word of glory. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways! For 
Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So, if you look in the text box to the right, again, this is a doxology. It is a word of praise. And it is Trinitarian in a way. Uh, What you have here is a a collection of three triads. And uh, um, some people have looked at that and said, you know, look, this is proof of the Trinity. Um, And and if you look at it that way, you know, you're in pretty good company. Uh, Origen, Ambrosiaster, Augustine, um, they all looked at that and they said, oh, this is proof of the Trinity. Um, I think maybe a little bit of a stretch, but I think it's definitely got that Trinitarian flavor to it because you have the the three sets of threes. Um, And and so when you look at verse 33, uh, the riches, wisdom, and knowledge. Oh, the depths of the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. And then when you look at 34 through 35, he asks three rhetorical questions. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? And that word given, uh, it's, it's not just that he gave something. It's kind of given in advance. It's kind of loaning to him uh, type of an idea. And then in verse 36, you have these three prepositions. For from him and through him and to him are all things. So to him be the glory forever and ever. So, for what? At the end of this part of the letter... For what are we glorifying God? And if you go back to verses 30 through 32, and take a look through that, there is a word that it gets repeated, and I think that that's your answer. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, It's all about mercy, that God has had mercy on us. And we give glory and praise to God because of his mercy. Now, this section is clearly poetic. Um, In certain uh, English translations, you will see that uh, in in the layout, in the text, that they set it aside that way. Uh, You can tell that reading it in the original, um, the way that uh, that the words go together, that that there's there's some poetry that's going on here. And uh, and it's good to ask, where did it come from? And again, certain translations do things with the stylizing of the text that give us some clues. Um, And you'll notice that on your sheet, Uh, Verses 34 and 35 are in bold. Uh, The Christian Standard Bible likes to do that, where they're quoting the Old Testament. They bold those texts so that you can know this is coming from from the Old Testament scriptures. So we do have some of this as citation from the Old Testament, the same way that we've been going through um, uh, over and over, and uh, we have a little bit of that. But... Overall, the thing seems to be crafted by Paul. That this was perhaps uh, part of a hymn, that it was perhaps something that he wrote as part of a creed. Um, you know, we, we don't know exactly you know, any other source for this. 
Uh, and so, you know, the idea that Paul wrote this makes a lot of sense. Now, verses 34 and 35, um, we can tell that part of this goes back to Jeremiah chapter 23, uh, verse 18. For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and hear his word? Who's paid attention to his word and obeyed? You know, there, there's that kind of an idea in there. Uh, Isaiah 40, verse 13. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord and who gave him counsel? We hear that kind of language in there. And then Isaiah 40, verse 13. Uh, who has direct? No, that's what I just read. Job 41, verse 11. Who confronted me that I, I should repay him? Everything under heaven belongs to me. So he, he's pulling from this Old Testament language. You know, and uh, you know, in, in that middle section. But the, the rest of it seems to be rather original. And, and peculiarly Pauline. Um, when you look at verse 33, uh, oh, the, the depths, the riches, and the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. Uh, verse 36 has some of this too. Um, they match themes that are gone into in much more detail in the Corinthian letters. And some people think that this letter was written to Rome from Corinth. Um, so in 1 Corinthians, it speaks of the, the depths of God, or oh, the depth of the riches and the knowledge of God. Wisdom is only mentioned here in Romans, but it's used 17 times in 1 Corinthians. It's a major theme in 1 Corinthians. You know, um, knowledge is mentioned three times in Romans, but it's 16 times in 1 and 2 Corinthians. So I kind of imagine, and so you, you caught that word imagine, right? So um, I, I could be very, very incredibly wrong about this. So, uh, but I kind of imagine Paul writing this letter and he's working in Corinth, and he's dealing with these issues of, of wisdom and knowledge as he's preaching and he's teaching every day. And he's writing to the, the Romans who have different issues. But a little bit of what he's been thinking about kind of creeps in as he's writing this part of the letter. I don't think that that's too much of a stretch. I, I, I mean, don't pin your salvation on it or anything like that. But, you know, it kind of makes sense. At least to me. Any comments or questions on the uh, the doxology stuff? You're all very compliant today. All right. So this concludes Romans nine through eleven. This this section that deals specifically with the relationships between the Jews and the Gentiles. This is a unique part of the letter. It is a very important part of this letter. Uh, it contains some of the deepest thoughts and and some of the most contested passages of the New Testament. I mean, we've we've wrestled with some really tough ideas here, right, over the last few months. It's a tough part of the Bible. You know, these are deep mysteries. Um, I like what uh, the, the commentator Middendorf said about this, and he's actually quoting another commentator as he says this, or part of this anyhow. 
As one considers the all-encompassing, all-encompassing salvific work of God in Christ throughout history, Paul concludes by leading us in reverent and joyful praise. Soli Deo Gloria. Then, if we have followed him through these chapters with serious and open-minded attentiveness, we may feel that he has given us enough to enable us to repeat the amen of this doxology. I like that, that part where he says that he's given us enough to enable us to, uh, to repeat the amen. Because as you've read through these, has this left any of you with questions? I mean, all of this has completely satisfied everything you've ever wondered, right? About God and election and the relationship with the Jews and the Gentiles. It's all perfectly clear to you now, right? It's much clearer than it was before. Well, thanks be to God for that. But that's, I think that's kind of how this is, is that there, you're dealing with a mystery here, and you get bits and pieces, but none of us has the whole thing because it's all part of the counsel of God. And so you get to the end of it, and hopefully there's enough where you can say, thanks be to God for what he's done. But there's still a whole bunch I don't get. Um, there's part of my, uh, my new member class that uses a, uh, an analogy of uh, uh, eating fish to when we read the scriptures. Um, uh, when I was a kid, uh, we would go bluegill fishing and uh, we would, I would scale the fish and then my dad would you know, cut off the head and take out the guts and then we would just fry them like that. Later, we learned to you know, fillet them. Um, and uh, us kids, uh, we always hated it when we had fish. Because <laughs> you're constantly pulling out the bones, right? Um, now you go to a fancy restaurant and they serve it to you just like that, right? And all the bones are there. You know? We were like, I want the fillet. <laughs> um, but uh, um, the, the, the guy who wrote this curriculum, he says, you know, that sometimes reading the scriptures is, is kind of like when you're eating fish. Sometimes you have to pick out the bones um, and set them aside. And I'm not completely comfortable with that imagery, but I do think that there's an element of truth in that, that sometimes there are things that, because God has not really clearly answered them for us, that we just have to kind of set it aside in, in, in faith and trust that in the end, he's got this under control. And I, I sometimes talk with people and they're like, I can't wait to get to heaven when God's gonna answer all of my questions. And I sometimes wonder, give you more questions. will he? <laughs> will we even care? That's right. Yeah. And I think that's the, or will we have so much trust in him that we're just gonna be fine? Yeah. Oh, he's gone. Yeah, Ed. It just pulls to mind, I was at a, a seafood restaurant once. And it said, ask about our whole fish special. And it was a fairly reasonable price dinner, so I asked about it. The waitress said, well, I think, uh, I think it's swordfish. And I, I was about to say, everybody, dinner's on me. That'd be a big fish. <laughs> whole fish swordfish. Whole swordfish, yeah. <laughs> that would have to be like a pig roast, wouldn't it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> she corrected herself. Oh, good. 
I think too, it's not it's not a bad thing to chalk things up as a mystery. It's yeah. God doesn't want us to know that, and that's okay. Yeah. And like you said, we just have to trust that in the end, He's in control of everything. Yeah, and, and I do think that there's um, <laughs> sometimes sometimes we use that to uh, to quench people's questions, and I want to avoid that because I think the questions are legitimate. But to end in that place of tension and faith, I think that's really where we want to go. Uh, I, I think that this might be one of the problems that we're having in the church right now, particularly with our younger people. You know, um, they, they've never been allowed to ask questions in some contexts. You know, you need to be able to ask questions. You need to feel safe asking questions because we're dealing with difficult stuff. It, it's like, I can't wrap my mind around this. And I think it's really important for, well, for everybody to hear, you know, yeah, no, that is tough. And, and you know, at the end of the day, I'm trusting God's going to bring us through this, but it's, it's hard. Because I think that there's kind of this impression out there that everything just gets answered nice and clean, you know. I can Google it. Yeah. And there's an answer. Yeah. Yeah, right? Well, in, you know, there's if you no think patience, about there's no waiting, there's no searching. The right. Part of the whole mission. Right? Yeah. And if you think about the like the TV shows that we watched growing up, you know, that almost always within a half an hour solved the entire mystery, right? <laughs> and I think that this is something that this next generation that's growing up is way more comfortable with. Um, I, I watched um, uh, Stranger Things, uh, and. Uh, Every stinking one of those episodes ends with, now what? Yeah. You know? And it, it, I, even, the, even the season finale, it gets a better ending, but almost always there's just something that's like, wait a second! You know, and I think they're more comfortable living with that tension, um, but they still want answers. They still, you know, I want answers. We've had all the answers. There's no room for faith. And faith right. is what saves us. Yeah, good point. Good point. All right, folks. We're going to get into a new section in Romans. Uh, uh, chapter 12 starts to uh, change its theme. It's a little bit more into how do you live this life? Mm. You know, so, um, you know, it's some, it's some interesting stuff. So uh, um, get, get ready to, uh, to think about being... Uh, not not giving, but being a spiritual sacrifice and going against the uh, the flow of the world, because that's a big part of the first part of uh, Romans 12. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, um, thank you that we could be here today, and we pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we walk by faith, and we ask that you would help us, even when we have these difficult questions and we come up with hard things, to trust you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.